5.30 p.m. Friday, October 1st, 1909. Swope Mansion, 406 South Pleasant Street, Independence, Missouri. James Moss Hunton dines alone in the huge dining room of the cavernous Swope Mansion. Although Cousin Moss, as he is known to the family, has felt unwell for several days, he is not one to let an upset stomach overcome his natural friendliness and good manners. So when Pearl Keller, a private nurse to his cousin, multi-millionaire developer Thomas Hutton Swope, passes by the dining room, he politely asks her to join him. Shortly after, the lady of the house, Mrs. Margaret Swope, widowed sister-in-law of Thomas, returns home from an afternoon of calling on friends with her daughter, Mrs. Frances Hyde. Suddenly, Cousin Moss announces, I feel so peculiar. Everything is so dizzy before me. Nurse Keller attends to him in the library while Mrs. Swope summons the family doctor and Frances's husband, another physician, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. Cousin Moss's condition rapidly deteriorates. Both doctors agree that he is suffering a cerebral hemorrhage. The accepted treatment at the time is to bleed off the patient to lessen the pressure on the brain. An incision is made in the patient's arm and he is allowed to bleed for a time. This has no helpful effect and Cousin Moss is dead by 8.30 p.m. that night. According to Nurse Keller, only 20 minutes later, as she is preparing the body for the undertaker, Dr. Hyde pulls her aside and says, as soon as you have some leisure, I want to have a private talk with you. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan 
who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. I'm not quite sure how to greet you all during these strange times. Happy pandemic, listeners! No, that doesn't sound right, although this is a podcast about murders, so a little dark humor might not be amiss. If you're listening in the future, I hope I'm not a voice from the grave. As I record this, it is April 2020, and most of the world is dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. Here in Leavenworth, there are a number of people in lockdown, but not most people, just the incarcerated population. The rest of us are just being sensible, staying home, avoiding contact with each other. I'm an introvert, so I don't mind this at all. Staying home is my very favorite thing to do. My husband, on the other hand, has cabin fever, but overall we're doing fine. I was happy to finally get the time to read the book about the case I decided to do for this episode. It's a little long and involved, but it's definitely worth the read. The book is entitled Death on Pleasant Street. The author, Giles Fowler, died just last year after a long and interesting career as a journalist. Death on Pleasant Street was a labor of love for him, and it shows in his book. He researched the case for many years before settling down to write the book. It's a very absorbing read, perfect for true crime fans stuck at home. I'll put the Amazon link to it on the show notes. I also used articles from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Kansas City Times and the Kansas City Star. The Times isn't in operation anymore. I think it merged with the Star years and years ago. I'll put those links out there too. Also, uh, this is a long case. I can tell by how many pages I wrote. So it'll be a two-parter. Little Inside Podcasting. It's actually one long script, but my editing software gets very annoying to work with after I go over about an hour. So for long cases, it's just easier for me to break it up. Not to worry, I record all in one session, so you won't have to wait long for the second part. Maybe a couple hours or so. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. The sudden death of Moss Hutton isn't the last in this case. James Moss Hutton is born in 1846 in New Orleans, the son of a prominent judge. He grows up in Kentucky. Never married. He has lived with his relatives, the Swopes, in the family home for many years. In his 60s, he's a banker and trusted financial advisor to his very wealthy cousin, Thomas Swope. By all accounts, Moss is a wonderful person who is a surrogate father to the many Swope children whose own father died in 1900. 
a small, rotund man given to dispensing candy from his pockets. Children call him Santa without a beard. The Swopes are very wealthy. The matriarch, Margaret Christman Swope, known as Maggie, is born in 1855 to a wealthy businessman and his wife. She grows up in Independence, Missouri, and dutifully marries wealthy businessman Logan Swope. They have eight children. At the time of Moss's death, five of the children are still living at the family home. Maggie Swope is what we would call a grand dame of Kansas City society. The Swope Mansion is not in Kansas City proper. It's located in the city of Independence, Missouri. Nowadays, Independence is largely a suburb of Kansas City, located north and east of downtown. However, although it is a city in its own right, independent, if you will. In fact, it's the county seat of Jackson County, the county where much of Kansas City is. About 100,000 people in 2010, only about 10,000 people at the time we're discussing. Its real claim to fame is it's the home of U.S. President Harry Truman. His presidential library and museum are in Independence. If you enjoy history, it's a very interesting place to visit. The Swamp Mansion no longer stands. It was torn down in 1960, but it was an impressive place in its day. That's not to say it's an attractive place, at least not to my taste. Looking at the pictures from the day, it's this huge dark brick and sandstone hodgepodge of competing architectures. It looks like it can't decide whether it's a castle or a church or a fancy university. Lots of towers and porches and different styles of windows. It took up a whole city block in its day and consisted of of at least a couple of dozen rooms, which is probably a good thing. In 1909, Margaret's household includes her children, cousin Moss, servants, and her crotchety old brother-in-law, Thomas Hutton Swope. Thomas Swope is born in 1827 in Kentucky to a prominent family. While he graduates from Yale Law School, he never practices as an attorney. Instead, early on, he becomes fascinated with developing real estate. In 1855, he goes west and settles in Kansas City, Missouri, which at the time isn't much more than a riverboat stop on the Missouri River, a little place on the edge of the frontier. Over time, he and his much younger brother, I think, oh, I should have looked, about 20 years younger, uh, brother Logan, amass fortunes. In many ways, Thomas Swope is the antithesis of Cousin Moss. He's the quintessential cantankerous old man. Here's what Giles Fowler writes in Death on Pleasant Street. The old bachelor occupying the southwest bedroom was about the worst house guest, permanent house guest, that one could imagine. At almost 82, 
He was cranky, melancholic, misanthropic, and practically friendless. He had no patience for sociable chit-chat. Afflicted by dyspepsia, he sometimes vomited while swallowing rich food. Age had weakened his bladder, which would empty without warning. Things had grown even worse in the last in the last eleven months since he'd abandoned his long-time drinking habit. Those noontime shots of spirituous comfort that left him comatose on his office couch. Deprived now of that solace, he was given to lamenting life's woes, predicting his imminent death to anyone who'd listen, or bellowing curses through his bedroom door. After slipping on a rug in the mansion's library and injuring a shoulder, he seldom left his room except by necessity, and the family saw less and less of him, which was probably a relief to all. Listeners, Thomas Swope is also not an attractive man physically. There are a few photographs of him out there, and he looks like what I imagine Ebenezer Scrooge might have looked like, almost completely bald, hooked nose, thin lips, covered by a an oversized handlebar mustache. Considering his nature, it is not surprising that he has something of a reputation as a Scrooge. In the 1890s, Kansas City is trying to rise above its roots as a dusty cow town. Civic and society leaders are trying to develop Cultural venues like theaters and museums and parks trying to elevate the city's stature. Concerned about real estate taxes, Thomas Swope gets in public spats trying to stop this. The Kansas City Star newspaper calls him a greedy mossback, whatever that is. This may have had some effect on him. In 1896, when he's almost 70, he donates a huge tract of land to the city to use as a park. Nowadays, according to Kansas City Parks and Rec, at 1,805 acres, or about seven square kilometers, Swope Park is the crown jewel of the KC Park System. As Kansas City's largest park and one of the largest municipal parks in the United States, Swope Park is home to many of Kansas City's finest attractions and annually hosts more than two million visitors. Hiking trails wind through the woodlands and grassy meadows encompassing soccer fields, golf courses, community gardens, fountains, and a treetop adventure park. Within the park is Starlight Theater, an outdoor amphitheater featuring musicals and concerts, and the Kansas City Zoo with more than a thousand animals from around the globe. 
the Lakeside Nature Center, Missouri's largest native species rehabilitation center, is also located in Swope Park. Listeners, let me just say, in comparison, I'll be a a Kansas City booster here, Central Park in New York City is less than half that size. Lincoln Park in Chicago, only 1,200 acres. It is a beautiful place to visit if you're in the area. Although I must say, I wouldn't advise going to Swope Park at night unless there's a big event like a concert or a show at the Starlight Theater going on, or maybe some kind of uh, festival like a beer fest or something. The city has tried to beef up security there, but it's a huge place and there are violent incidents there. It's unfortunately become a rendezvous spot for drug stuff. Okay, back to our story. Thomas is very fond of Cousin Moss and his sister-in-law Maggie, although he doesn't show it much. And he has Nurse Pearl Keller to attend to his needs. Lately, She's persuaded him to take regular carriage rides in the afternoons. This does seem to have improved his disposition a little. Maggie's oldest daughter, Frances Hyde, is 30 years old in 1909. She's been married to Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, called Clark most of the time, so I'll do that too, for about three years now. He's seven years older than she. Frances is a lively, charming, attractive enough young matron. The couple met in 1903. Frances is immediately smitten by the handsome, up-and-coming young physician who, while not wealthy, in fact, just the opposite, more like a genteel, poor family, um, and it's a good family, His father is a well-respected minister in Missouri. Clark Hyde is born in 1872 in Cooper County, Missouri. That's a ways east of Kansas City, close to Columbia, home of the University of Missouri. He goes to medical school in Kansas City at UMKC. Um, that would now be the University of Missouri at Kansas City, my older daughter's alma mater. Not knowing anything else about him, he would seem to be a very good catch for Francis, except for the part about being poor. And for his part, um, I'm sure Francis's wealth is not exactly a turnoff, Unfortunately, our Dr. Hyde has a very unsavory reputation. He's what's known as a cad and a bounder. The gossip is, actually, listeners, it's not gossip. It's all true. Clark likes to have affairs with married women promise to marry them, borrow money from them, 
and then refuse to pay them back when he drops them. When Frances Swope announces her intention to marry Clark Hyde, Kansas City society erupts in a scandal. Maggie Swope absolutely forbids the engagement. She tries to pack Frances off first to visit relatives in Virginia and then on an extended trip to Europe. But Frances is not going along with this. She knows all about the gossip, which is actually true, and she doesn't care. She goes to visit some relatives in Arkansas who are a little more sympathetic in their views about young love. The relatives try very hard to get Maggie to relent, but when she doesn't, Francis and Clark just get married there in Arkansas, in spite of not having her mother's blessing. Francis and her mother don't speak to each other for well over a year. Finally, Maggie relents and has a heart-to-heart talk with her daughter and agrees to at least tolerate the marriage and see how things go. Slowly, relations warm up a little. There's an incident when Francis's brother also named Thomas, is badly injured, and Dr. Hyde ministers to him in a nice way and impresses Maggie with his thoughtfulness and kindness at the time. By the fall of 1909, Maggie doesn't love and adore her son-in-law, but she's willing to have him over to dinner and at least accept him into the family. Of Hyde's character, Giles Fowler writes this. Accounts suggest a personality in conflict with itself. Hyde is seen as both cordial and aloof. An amusing companion in a social setting, but cold and brusque with those he felt unworthy of his regard. With fellow doctors, he showed collegiality and respect. In tense situations, he displayed less personable traits, an unseemly pushiness, a pride bordering on arrogance, and a defensive tendency towards snappishness and sarcasm. There were even those who claimed that the doctor had two different smiles. The first, the natural one, was endearingly genuine. Everyone agreed on that. But the other was disconcertingly mechanical. Click, it flashed on, as if by some deliberate internal switch, and click, it would vanish. Or were those who remarked on it just imagining things? Listeners, knowing what happens, I don't think they imagined anything. Interestingly, One person in the family who does seem to like Dr. Clark Hyde is old Thomas Swope, who likes very few people, as we've said. When Clark comes to the mansion, the doctor, he, 
makes a point of checking on Thomas's high health, and they often spend time discussing classic literature, a passion and particular interest of Thomas Swope's. They are both well-educated and mutually enjoy their conversations. Thomas becomes convinced that Hyde is a good man. He goes so far as to buy Francis and Clark a very nice home in Kansas City, furnishings and all, spending $10,000, the equivalent of $300,000 today. So, a very generous belated wedding gift. The home is a roomy place, two stories, shaded front porch, uh, typical of the time. And in 1909, at least, this is a very nice middle-class part of town. If you know Kansas City, the address of the home is 3516 Forest Avenue. Realtor.com shows that address as a vacant lot, but on Google Earth, right across the street is what looks exactly like the house shown in the book. So I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe the address changed or they've just got it wrong somewhere. Anyway, um, it, even now, um, it, it doesn't look like too bad a part of town, but it's really pretty high crime area. Um, although, I mean, it looks like people are really trying to keep appearances up. Maybe, um, Maybe I'd call it just a basic working-class neighborhood nowadays. I, I wouldn't be afraid to go down there in the daytime. Anyway, at the time, it was a very nice middle-class neighborhood. Thomas also uses his influence to get Clark a prestigious job at the city hospital. Clark's career as a successful doctor seems assured. Anyway, in the fall of 1909... The drama has mostly subsided at the Swope Mansion. The people living there and their friends and relatives are getting along as well as can be expected. Dr. Hyde and his wife are fairly sure they've not been written out of the family wills. In fact, they no doubt expect to inherit a substantial sum of money when Uncle Thomas dies. And very soon, this might happen. Thomas Swope is not very healthy. Clark is a doctor, and he can see that the frail, elderly Thomas Swope is not long for this world. Since donating the land for the park, Thomas works diligently to change his image from Scrooge to benevolent philanthropist. Over the years, he gives generous gifts to many charitable causes with a special interest in endowing educational institutions. But in 1909, he is still dithering over what to do with the bulk of his fortune, which is still millions and millions. 
he starts bringing his will home from the office and planning changes to it. In his current will, made out four years ago, he leaves his nieces and nephews real estate worth a lot. The values of these properties have fluctuated since 1905, so that the amounts of money range from $136,000 to about twice that. He's also left each of them a lump sum of $140,000. This is a lot of money. $100,000 in 1909, about $3 million today. Thomas has appointed Cousin Moss to administer his will. In the fall of 1909, Thomas starts having misgivings about the lump sums of $140,000. He's indicated that he's thinking giving the young people so much money may not be in their best interest. He consults with associates about worthy charities. By the end of September, he's ready to make a new will, reportedly leaving much of his wealth to support a foundation for the needy people of Kansas City. Then on October 1st, the administer of the will, Thomas's trusted friend, Moss Hutton, dies suddenly. Thomas is shattered by his death, and he is also quite ill. In his mind, all this makes finalizing the new will all the more urgent. He instructs his business manager, Sylvester Spangler, to gather up all the relevant paperwork about his holdings and come to the mansion first thing on Monday morning, October 4th. He's finally ready to finalize his last will and testament. He won't live long enough to do that. The very night of Cousin Moss's death, Dr. Hyde, according to Nurse Keller, pulled her aside and asked a favor of her. I want you to do something for me tomorrow. Now, I am not a businessman, but I can be. And now that this man, Hunton, is gone, who was one of the administrators of Mr. Swope's will, I want you. You have influence with the old man. I want you to suggest me in his stead. Mr. Swope has in mind putting in this man, Hawthorne, who has been a justice of the peace and who has a dirty record. According to Keller, Hyde also observed significantly that Colonel Swope, in a few days, would be making a new will. Listeners, did this really happen? Clark Hyde vehemently denies it. As we'll see, there's no love lost between Nurse Keller and Dr. Hyde, so she could be embellishing or even making it up. Although if she is, it's not for her own personal gain. Whatever the case, in my opinion, Hyde is undoubtedly very anxious about what's happening to his wife's inheritance. And he is certainly trying to ingratiate himself with the wealthy Thomas Swope. What happened at the Swope mansion 
on Sunday, October 3rd, is up for debate. There will be several versions told. This is Nurse Pearl Keller's account, and frankly, the one I think is the most accurate. Early Sunday morning, Pearl takes breakfast, which she prepares herself, upstairs to Mr. Swope's bedroom. She feeds him and attends to his needs. Once he's settled in, she goes to the dining room to have breakfast. Mrs. Swope and her younger son Thomas, age 27, and her 21-year-old daughter, also named Margaret, are all in the dining room. Soon Francis and Clark, who had spent the night at the mansion, come down to breakfast. Now's probably a good time to introduce you to the rest of the family. Margaret, the matriarch, who's always called Maggie, and her late husband, Logan Swope, have eight children. One dies in infancy. William Chrisman Swope, they call him Chrisman, a businessman and bachelor, lives at the mansion. He's the oldest. Francis Hyde is the next oldest child. Thomas, the second son, does not live there. He manages a nearby farm and lives there with his wife and children. Due to the family tragedy, he also spent the night at the mansion. Finally, there are three younger daughters who all live with their mother. Lucy, 23, who's off in Paris on a tour. Margaret, 21, and two young teens, Stella and Sarah. Dr. Hyde says that he has brought a new digestive relief medicine for Uncle Thomas to try. He and Pearl go up to Swope's room, but Thomas childishly refuses to take it. Pearl takes Clark outside the room and assures him that she will get her patient to take his medicine. And they leave the room. Pearl goes back downstairs, looks over the morning papers for a bit, and takes the newspapers up to her patient to read. She has no trouble giving him the medicine and leaves him propped up in bed happily reading the papers. She notes the time is 8.30 a.m. I should note that Francis and Clark completely deny all of this. Clark says he gave Keller the medicine the night before and simply asked whether Thomas had taken it, and he didn't go up with her to Thomas's bedroom ever. Furthermore, Francis says that her mother was still not down at breakfast with the family. They do all pretty much agree about what comes next. Pearl Keller, who is checking on her patient, becomes alarmed at his condition. About nine o'clock, he has a serious convulsion. Nurse Keller calls for Dr. Hyde. Francis will report the nurse saying he is having a stroke, which Francis disagree, which, sorry, Pearl disagrees with. Soon Francis, the doctor, Nurse Keller, and Chrisman, whose room is nearby, are all gathered at Swope's bedside. Maggie is too, shape, too shaken to go into the room, but she's just outside. Dr. Hyde tells her that Thomas is clearly 
having a stroke, much like what happened to Cousin Moss, quote, probably brought on by the shock of his dear old friend's death. It's only a matter of time now, unquote. Now, Nurse Keller doesn't believe what's happening to Thomas is anything like what went on with Cousin Moss, but she keeps this to herself. After all, Clark Hyde is the physician on the scene. Thomas does survive the convulsion, but he's in very bad shape. His pulse is racing, and he soon goes unconscious again. Dr. Hyde instructs Nurse Keller to administer a shot of strychnine. Yes, strychnine, listeners, that is rat poison and a favorite poison of murderers throughout history. However, at the time, it was used medicinally to stimulate the heart. Pearl thinks this is very odd because Swope's heart is already beating way too fast. But she does as the doctor tells her. Even though Pearl doesn't share her suspicions with anyone at the time, during the afternoon, she searches the bedroom, looking for the box of medicine that Dr. Hyde had given her the capsule from that she gave Thomas that morning. Interestingly, she cannot find the box anywhere. Throughout the day, Swope's condition worsens, and he falls into a coma, barely breathing. Associates and family begin a death watch. His attorneys and business manager arrive at the house. Finally, at 7.30 p.m., Dr. Hyde pronounces the death of Thomas Swope. The family attorney, John Gallatin Paxton, one of the executors of Thomas's will, immediately begins searching for the will. It's found in one of Thomas's vest pockets in the bedroom. Soon after, just like we've all seen in the movies, the lawyer conducts the reading of the will. Since Thomas never got a chance to change the will to leave most of his money to charity, the family members receive quite large sums of money under the terms of his will. There is an interesting proviso in the will that I didn't mention. If any niece or nephew dies unmarried and childless, that person's share goes back to the estate to be shared equally by the surviving heirs. So to put it crassly, if any of Maggie's children dies without an heir or a spouse, the children who are left all stand to gain a great deal of money. Of the children, only Thomas Jr. and Francis have heirs 
or spouses. Time passes that fall for the Swope family. It's a somber household for a while, but as the Christmas season rolls around, things start to get back to normal. The family celebrates Thanksgiving Day as usual. For those of you who aren't familiar, Thanksgiving Day is a big holiday in the U.S. that commemorates a feast held at the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts by early European settlers. They were celebrating a bountiful harvest that came after some very hard times. Thanksgiving Day is always celebrated in the U.S. on the third Thursday of November. In 1909, it's on the 25th of November. Traditionally, it's a time for families to gather and feast on huge amounts of turkey and pumpkin pie and other traditional family foods. Nowadays, most families have a big midday meal, eat themselves into a stupor, and fall asleep watching football on TV. Of course, the Swope family isn't watching football on TV, but there is a big football game in town that Thanksgiving of 1909. The University of Kansas Jayhawks versus the University of Missouri Tigers. Francis and Clark Hyde take some of their visiting relatives to the game that afternoon. And so the family isn't able to sit down to the big feast until that evening. By all accounts, it was a sumptuous meal, followed by pleasant socializing until 9 or 10 o'clock that night. On the following Sunday, the oldest Swope son, Chrisman, wakes up not quite feeling himself. He manages to go to church and even takes his mother to the train station to visit friends in Chicago, but he keeps feeling worse and worse. On Monday, young Margaret Swope begs off on a Christmas shopping trip with her sister Frances, complaining of a bad headache. When both Christmas and Margaret are too sick to get out of bed, Dr. George Twyman, the family physician, in independence is called in. He has his, his suspicions about what the illness is, but he finds it very odd that it would occur in a wealthy family like the Swopes. What he suspects is typhoid fever. In 1909, outbreaks of typhoid in Kansas City are not uncommon but they're typically associated with poor sanitation. That's why Dr. Twyman is surprised to find it in Swope family members. They have modern indoor plumbing and a clean water supply. Now, they also have servants who don't all live in the mansion. If you've heard of Typhoid Mary, she was a notorious carrier of the disease and the source of a major typhoid outbreak in New York City. Over 50 deaths are associated with her. She was a cook for wealthy families in New York. Leonore Copridge, a servant of the Swopes, does happen to be suffering at the same time from typhoid. 
So it's suspected that might be the source by Dr. Twyman. There is a vaccine for typhoid in 1909 developed by a British doctor. It was introduced in 1896 and used to protect soldiers in the Boer War. In 1909, an American military doctor will persuade the authorities to vaccinate all the troops, virtually eliminating typhoid as a problem among the troops. But it's certainly not a common vaccination for the general public. So there are still outbreaks. Chlorinated water is one of the best ways to prevent the spread of typhoid, and it's starting to be standard in American water supplies at that time. In the Swope household, the drinking water comes from a large rainwater cistern, which is filtered through a professionally installed and maintained charcoal filter before it gets to the house. Um, it's regularly cleaned and monitored by professionals. They're, they also have what's called washing water, um, faucet water, that's untreated city water, but that's not used to drink or cook with. So anyway, in Dr. Twyman's mind, this is an unlikely place to find typhoid, but it's obviously possible, and he'll soon find out that is exactly what his patients have. There is a standard blood test for typhoid available at the time. It's called a Weidel test after its inventor, French scientist George Weidel. Um, that's probably not how the French say it, maybe Guidal or something like that. But the doctor I talked to called it a Weidel test. However, often patients don't show up positive until they've had the disease for about a week. So, um, the, in other words, the incubation period for it, the infection is about a week. And by that time, they'll already be showing pretty good symptoms of typhoid. The death rate, even over 100 years ago, before antibiotics and other modern treatments, is relatively low, only about 5%. Now, for some reason, nobody tells Maggie Swope, who is off in Chicago Christmas shopping and visiting friends, what's going on at home. She is shocked when she arrives home the next Sunday morning to find the mansion turned into a virtual hospital. Dr. Twyman and her son-in-law, Dr. Clark Hyde, and five nurses are scurrying around tending to five confirmed cases of typhoid fever. Leonora, the servant, a seamstress, Georgia Compton, who was working at the mansion, Maggie's children, Chrisman and Margaret, and the children's companion, cousin Nora Bell Dixon, are all down with obvious symptoms of typhoid. Now Maggie's assured that only Margaret is seriously ill. In fact, when Maggie goes to see Chrisman, he tells her, Mother, don't be uneasy. We'll all be well soon. I think I will be up tomorrow. I am not sick much. They are just keeping me in bed. 
young Margaret is the sickest patient, and even she seems to be on the road to recovery. Then later in the afternoon, Chrisman takes a turn for the worse. Francis, who's been staying at the mansion helping nurse patients, informs one of the nurses that his fever has gone up, and the doctor would like her, the nurse, to give him a sponge bath. As the nurses attend to him, Christmas begins to convulse violently. The nurses call urgently for the doctor, who diagnoses Chrisman with meningitis, which can be brought on by typhoid. Dr. Twyman and his son, Dr. Elmer Twyman, are summoned to the house. They don't agree with the meningitis diagnosis, and they are troubled by the strychnine injections that Hyde has ordered. Hyde tells them very well he'll substitute morphine injections. They later learn that he is resumed giving the strychnine. Throughout the day and night, Chrisman's condition worsens. By Monday afternoon, his temperature is over 107 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 41.7 Celsius. So a horrifying temperature. Chrisman goes in and out of consciousness and finally has a terrifying seizure that he will never recover from. At 9.50 p.m. on December 6, 1909, he's pronounced dead. He is unmarried and childless at the time of his death. In the meantime, the typhoid continues to run its course in the patients at the mansion. Margaret and the nurses enforce strict cleanliness rules in the house. Only bottled water is allowed. The plumbing and the water supply are all checked by experts and no source for the infection can be found. Doctors suspect that the source must be the servants but no one in their families are showing signs of typhoid. A few days after Christmas' death, teenage daughters Stella and Sarah come down with fevers. A friend of theirs, Mildred Fox, who was visiting the girls over the Thanksgiving weekend, is suffering from typhoid as well. Her family doctor consults a friend, physician, and well-known Kansas City doc bacteriologist, Dr. Edward Stewart. Of course, Stewart is aware of Chrisman's recent death. In fact, he's been somewhat puzzled by the case. It's not just that typhoid outbreaks usually occur in places where the sanitation is poor. He's also puzzled that more cases aren't showing up in Independence. The isolated Swope Mansion outbreak is strange to him, and even alarming. Most alarming to him is a brewing suspicion about his esteemed colleague, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, physician and even president-elect of the Jackson County Medical Society. On November 10th that year, just a month before, Dr. Hyde had come to Dr. Stewart's office with a request. Hyde told him that he was considering setting up a lab at his office. He wants to study various bacteria 
and do his own tests there at his office. Stuart is happy to help him with this. In those days, many progressive young doctors have their own labs and spend time trying to come up with treatments for bacterial infections. Stuart provides Hyde with test tubes of bacteria, including a couple of harmless samples, some pus germs, and also strains of more deadly bacteria, anthrax, diphtheria, and typhoid. Stuart keeps his suspicions to himself, telling no one except his partner, at his medical office and his wife. They decide he should proceed very cautiously and verify his suspicions before going public with any accusations. Thus, Dr. Edward Stewart becomes a medical detective. He goes to Dr. Clark Hyde's office in Kansas City. When he knows the doctor isn't there, to avoid arousing his suspicions. He spins the receptionist a little tale about how one of his bacteria cultures has died and he would like to take a little bit from the samples he gave Dr. Hyde to grow some more. Of course, the receptionist helpfully lets him into Hyde's office. It doesn't look to Dr. Stewart like Hyde has made any progress towards setting up his own lab, but it is the holiday season. The vials of bacteria are still in the medicine cabinet where he had delivered them a few weeks earlier. Stewart immediately can tell that bacteria is missing from the typhoid test tube. In those days, I don't know, maybe nowadays even, scientists use little loops of platinum to take bacteria out of test tubes to put on slides. And Stuart later says that it looked to him like someone had taken a loop and removed enough typhoid germs to, quote, infect the entire city, unquote. He takes the test tube to his lab but not until he has another doctor friend of his examine the vial and confirm what he's seeing. He then locks the tube in his own office with the documentation and replaces it with a similar one containing a dead colony of typhoid germs. That tube is the one he later returns to Hyde's office. Now, it isn't actually a completely dead sample. Of typhoid. But at the time, Dr. Stewart is thinking Hyde has used the deadly typhoid he had given him to poison his family. So he's kind of in a hurry to get the test tube back to Hyde's office before he becomes suspicious. When he goes back to the office, he also notices the diphtheria tube looks like it's had bacteria removed. There's also an incident at the mansion that puts Maggie on her guard. Maggie has always suffered with headaches. The stressful events of the last few weeks have done nothing to improve this, but she's been forcing herself 
to endure them so she can manage the crises in her family. To her great displeasure, none of the infection experts she has hired has been able to get to the root of what's causing the typhoid, only adding more to her stress. One day, she's suffering so much from a headache that she acquiesces when Clark gives her something new to try. Listeners, that would have to be the worst headache in the world and Clark the last doctor in the world before I'd let him give me anything. But for whatever reason, Maggie lets her guard down and takes the headache medicine with a glass of water Clark hands her. She immediately complains about the bitter taste of the water and asks Clark where it came from. He tells her from the cooler of distilled water in the kitchen. There is something radically wrong with that water, no matter what you say, she says, and tells Francis, daughter, have that water emptied out of the cooler and don't allow anyone to drink it because it is the vilest stuff I ever put in my mouth. Then she asks for something to help her vomit. Not waiting for the emetic, she puts her finger down her throat and upchucks her breakfast and whatever Clark gave her. Now, listeners, this is probably a good time to introduce the nurses who play a very important role in our story. We've met Pearl Keller already. She was Thomas Swope's nurse. She's there for the typhoid situation, as well as nurses Elizabeth Gordon, Anna Houlihan, Rose Churchill, May Pierce, and Lou Van Nuys. As time goes by, they will all come to distrust Hyde and his intentions. Even though Pearl did suspect that Dr. Hyde played a part in Cousin Moss Hunton's death and that of Thomas Swope, at the time, all she did was confide in Dr. Twyman and his son, who also had their suspicions, but they didn't act on them either. This isn't too surprising. Doctors are notoriously reluctant to judge fellow doctors. By the very nature of their profession, people in their care are going to be hurt and die even when they do everything exactly right. And no human is going to do everything exactly right every time. Couple that with the current fear of malpractice suits, and it's understandable that it's still a problem that doctors ignore and even cover up mistakes other doctors make. Plus, if you think about it, doctors and nurses are in a very good position to get away with murder. They have the knowledge and the opportunity, so it's no wonder there are a number of cases of serial killer doctors and nurses. Investigative journalist James B. Stewart wrote a book about Dr. Michael Swango. Swango, maybe. 
I don't know. I, I have seen shows about him. He's pretty famous, uh, a notorious serial poisoner. The book is called Blind Eye, and it's about this issue of letting doctors police themselves. He said, quote, the loyalty among, doc- among physicians makes police officers famous blue wall of silence seem porous in comparison, unquote. However, in the Swope case, later on, several doctors will be willing to go to bat to expose Clark Hyde as a murderer. Although it must be said that our group of nurses is the driving force that leads to his downfall. Young Margaret is still very ill in the days following her brother's death, but stable. And typhoid typically takes three weeks to a month to run its course. On December 12th, though, her condition worsens. The reason for this, at least according to the nurses, who by this time have their own suspicions, is an injection given by Dr. Clark Hyde. Margaret's nurse, nurse Elizabeth Gordon, settles Margaret down one night and leaves her conscious and comfortable. As soon as she leaves, Dr. Hyde comes in, we could even say sneaks in, with a shot to administer that Margaret is not expecting. For one thing, she has a great dread of needles, so Dr. Twyman has been giving her oral medications, and her nurse hasn't said anything about an injection. Very suddenly, Clark just grabs her arm and jabs the needle very hard into it, just above her elbow. She jerks her arm away from him and begins to cry from the sharp pain, just as Nurse Rose Churchill comes into the room with fresh supplies. According to her, Hyde jumps when he sees her and hurries off, saying he just gave Margaret a shot of camphorated oil because her pulse was weak. To her, this is odd because Margaret's pulse has been just fine. And Rose doesn't smell camphor, which has a strong smell. And she hasn't seen any in any of the medical supplies in the house. Rose and Elizabeth examine Margaret's arm and become alarmed that the injection is already swollen and red and hot to the touch. By the next morning, Margaret's whole arm is inflamed and swollen, and Margaret's in great pain from it. Clark denies that he did anything wrong, but from then on, the nurses form a pact to never leave Hyde alone with a patient. Pearl Keller says, quote, Girls, just one more thing has got to happen, and I will not be here. Dr. Twyman has got to share this thing. I will not be here and see these people murdered, unquote. Meanwhile, Maggie summons her daughter, Lucy Lee, off in Europe to come home. Lucy is soon to arrive in New York and must be suitably escorted back to Kansas City. Maggie really wants Frances to go, but Frances is in the very early stages of her first pregnancy. Clark volunteers, but Maggie is having none of this. 
She has never liked Clark and is now suspicious of him, too. She decides to have a young neighbor, Mary Hickman, go to New York. She delegates the details of the arrangement to get Mary to New York to her daughter, Frances, who promptly ignores everything her mother said and arranges for Clark to go. By the time Mark Maggie finds out about this, the deed is done, and Clark is the one accompanying Lucy Lee back on the train from New York. While he's gone, the situation at the mansion improves a little. No one else gets sick, and young Margaret starts doing much better. As the nurses anticipate the arrival of Lucy Lee and Dr. Hyde, Nurse Houlihan prophetically says, Miss Gordon, I have a presentiment that something is going to change our conditions. The other nurse replied, Dr. Hyde is coming home. You wait and see if something don't happen. Shortly after Lucy Lee and Dr. Hyde arrive in Kansas City, something will happen. The one more thing Pearl Keller spoke of. Okay, I think this is a good place to stop. I'll get this part posted and get started on the last part for you. Shouldn't be too long before part two is out there for you to listen to. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you can leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome too. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City Murders, all one word, dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. If you hate putting your thoughts out there on the internet, I get that. So you can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.